Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. I am Lackey and Liberal. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. And today, uh, well, first of all, let me say, for those of you who may be uh, new to this program, uh, not really sure with what I do, uh, this is a podcast where we will be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events as it relates to aspects of law, politics, and culture. Now, with that out of the way, uh, this video, as you could probably guess by the title of it, when you clicked on it, is part two of a series that I have been doing uh, where I have been looking at the history of both the Second Amendment and of the general militia power uh, and looking at them uh, specifically in a light of how they can be a form of police reform in and of themselves. So I've kind of been going chronologically through the history, uh, mostly through the uh, case law uh, that has to do with these topics. Uh, we've gone through Dred Scott, and we left off last time with the 1939 case of U.S. v. Miller. And so we're about to pick up here uh, with what would be the next case in the series, which is the District of Columbia v. Heller. Uh, just a bit of uh, quick house cleaning here. Uh, something that I forgot to mention when I made part one is that uh, in that part one video, and you will also find it in this part two video in the description, is I will make sure to have links uh, to further information about absolutely everything I'm covering here, uh, which largely means that I'll be uh, directing you to places where you can find the full legal briefs for any case I mention and the precise citations for any statutes that I discuss, even cases or laws that are really only mentioned in passing. Uh, as well as any uh, additional interesting or useful information generally on the topics we're talking about, I'll try and throw in here. And also because uh, the purpose of this series is to look at this stuff in the light of a means of police reform, uh, I wanted to also include uh, links down in the description uh, to other people talking about different aspects of police reform that I'm not personally going to be talking about in these videos. I'm trying to stay focused here. Uh, but uh, people talking about ending qualified immunity, the demilitarization of police, ending the surveillance state, the war on drugs, uh, reducing the size and scope of police power in general. Uh, so I'll be having links to either articles or videos talking about all of those subjects uh, from good people you can trust, like the 10th Amendment Center, uh, Reason TV, Chris Ann Hall, Learn Liberty, people like that. So uh, check the description for those as well. All right. District of Columbia v. Heller. Now, uh, many of you are probably already familiar with this case uh, and know it as the 2008 case where... Noted fascist Antonin Scalia overturned 200 years of Supreme Court precedent that had consistently ruled over and over again that the Second Amendment is nothing more than a collective right of a state to have a militia, 
That is, of course, until this case and this one unelected Supreme Court justice came along and decided to pen the greatest lie the NRA was ever able to corruptly bribe into existence. Now, there's probably some of you out there who are familiar with the 2008 case of District of Columbia v. Heller, who actually bothered to read the legal brief, listen to the oral arguments, the voluminous filings by the various amici to the court, as well as the full compendium of past case law that has any bearing on the underlying constitutional law issues addressed by the Heller court, as well as the majority opinion written by Justice Antonin Scalia and the dissenting opinion by Justice Stevens, who will know this case as the case that very correctly upheld the view in both the Constitution and in common law that the Second Amendment right protects the right uh, to have a firearm in the home for the purposes of self-defense. So to get a little more uh, specific here with you guys, uh, in 2008, the Supreme Court chose to grant cert on a case that challenged the District of Columbia's handgun ban as a violation of the Second Amendment. The District of Columbia law managed to ban handgun possession by making it a crime to carry an unregistered firearm and then prohibiting the registration of handguns. Now, Dick Heller worked as a D.C. special policeman who was required to use a firearm at work to protect federal judges. However, when he applied to register a handgun that he wished to keep at home, the district refused. Heller challenged the constitutionality of the district's handgun ban, and the court sharply divided by a 5-4 to four vote, with the majority opinion being written by Antonin Scalia. And what the majority found was that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to have and use arms for self-defense in the home. So let's take a look at the text of the amendment itself. Now, there are uh, two parts of it. We have the first part, the prefatory clause that reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, which is followed by an operative clause that reads, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, even uh, Scalia acknowledged in his ruling uh, that the prefatory clause creates uh, what he referred to as an interpretive difficulty. Specifically, the prologue causes some people to think that the Second Amendment confers only a collective rather than an individual right. And I actually want to take a second here and uh, break from Heller uh, entirely, actually. Uh, this is something that wasn't discussed uh, in that case at all. Uh, and in fact, this is something that most people don't even know exists, uh, but I think it's worth mentioning really quick, and that is the preamble to the Bill of Rights. Now, really, just like the Constitution has a preamble, uh, and just like any most statutes have a preamble, which is nothing more than a clause at the beginning of a Constitution or a statute that is explanatory of the reason for its enactments and declares the object sought to be accomplished. So the preamble to our Bill of Rights reads, the conventions of a number of the states having at the time of their adopting the Constitution expressed a desire in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its power that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added, and as extending the ground of public confidence in the government 
will best ensure the beneficent start of its institution. Now, there's a reason I bring that up here specifically. Uh, it's because if you look here uh, at what it talks about the Bill of Rights adding, further declaratory and restrictive clauses. Now, I know a lot of people uh, ha have a tough time uh, understanding what you mean when you talk about prefatory and operative clauses. Those, that feels like a little more uh, archaic uh, language, so to speak. And really, uh, declaratory and restrictive, uh, I mean, legally speaking, essentially mean the exact same thing, but I think they express it in language that is uh, a little more uh, conversational or just a little more common uh, for us today. So if you kind of have trouble getting your head around prefatory and operative and why we're making some distinction, what I would suggest is think of it as declaratory and restrictive. So you really, uh, I mean, essentially to kind of reword it in that sense, you could say that the Second Amendment declares the importance of a militia to a free state, and it therefore restricts the government from infringing the right of the people to keep and bear arms. So I, I just thought I would throw that in. Now, uh, the minority opinion, which was penned by Justice Stevens, uh, clearly took the position, as it says here, that the preamble clearly contemplates the use of arms in a militia. However, it is generally accepted in law that nothing contained as text in a prologue can limit the scope of an operative text. And it is for this reason that the court began its interpretation with the study of the operative text. Scalia concluded, after examining many uses of both keep arms and bear arms in sources both contemporaneous with and antecedent to the adoption of the Second Amendment, that it means pretty much what it means today, to have and to carry weapons. Those old sources refute the notion that either bear arms alone or keep and bear arms in combination have an exclusively military connotation. And in 1791, it was universally understood that the Second Amendment incorporated into the federal constitution a pre-existing right of Englishmen set forth in the 1689 Bill of Rights. Next, the court then returned to the prefatory clause, noting that the militia consisted of all male citizens capable of military service. And that the thought was to be a protection against not only attack from abroad, but tyranny at home. The lesson learned, if the people cannot have arms, there will be no people's militia. And it is for this reason that the court found the meaning of the prefatory clause was completely consistent with the operative clause. As Scalia stated, the two clauses go together beautifully. Since we need a militia, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, after holding that the Second Amendment recognized an individual right that was not necessarily predicated on service in a militia, they did recognize certain limits on the right. For example, they clarified uh, that the operative clause protects weapons that are, as the court referred to it, in common use at the time. 
And next, they turned uh, to deciding what level of scrutiny should be applied to the protection of this particular right. Now, something that was very surprising, I, I was certainly surprised by this, but um, was that the court chose not to define a standard of judicial scrutiny for protecting this fundamental right. Now, when the D.C. Circuit Court had initially ruled on this case, they had applied strict scrutiny. However, uh, Paul Clement, the acting Solicitor General for the Bush administration, uh, appeared as an amicus curiae to urge the court to instead adopt an intermediate level of scrutiny. Uh, but despite all of this, uh, during oral arguments, Chief Justice John Roberts made it clear that he didn't think it was necessary to define a comprehensive standard and indicated that the level of judicial scrutiny should be created over a period of years rather than all at once. And the court ended up following the Chief Justice's lead on this. And the opinion written by Scalia, while it does recognize heightened scrutiny, does not give a comprehensive definition. What he did conclude, though, was that a constitutional guarantee, subject to a future judge's assessment of its usefulness, is no constitutional guarantee at all. Furthermore, Scalia, in his opinion, said that the district's laws were unconstitutional under any of the standards of scrutiny the court had applied to enumerated constitutional rights. And there is what I mean when I talk about a heightened level of scrutiny, is that he's not applying rational basis scrutiny, though he uh, fails to decide whether intermediate or strict would be the right way to go. But he signifies simply just a heightened standard of scrutiny and that the Second Amendment necessarily takes certain policy choices off the table. And in the 5-4 split, this is exactly how the court divided. And I think it's worth noting really quickly, um, people talk about liberal and conservative justice. And I think in, in some senses that can be misleading and that it, it leads people to think that what we are talking about is people acting on their own political preferences. And for the most part, I don't think that is the case. Now, even uh, like, like Justice Stevens, who I, I wholly uh, disagree uh, with his ruling on this, but I do generally believe that he came to his ruling as a matter of principled uh, judicial interpretation. I just think he has a, a shitty principle of judicial interpretation is all really. But um, so, yeah, really. Uh, when we're talking about the difference between the dissenting minority and the majority opinion, we're not really talking about uh, liberal and conservative in the political sense, but we're talking about whether one uses original intent or original meaning in how one uh, essentially looks at uh, a law. Next up, and this will be the final case we will talk about today, will be McDonald v. Chicago. Now, while the Heller court only examined gun control on a federal level, according to the Second Amendment, in our final case, 2010's McDonald v. Chicago, they would deliberate on the right to keep and bear arms as incorporated onto these states by the 14th Amendment. 
In D.C. v. Heller, the Second Amendment was found to protect an individual right to keep and bear arms in the home for the purposes of self-defense. However, Heller only considered whether the Second Amendment restricts federal gun control laws. What it did not decide is if the Second Amendment also applied to the states. And immediately after Heller was decided, Otis McDonald and a number of other Chicago residents challenged ordinances in the city that had effectively banned handgun possession by virtually all private persons in the city. I'm Otis McDonald, and I'm 77 years old. And to go down there and then they say, uh, no, you can't have a handgun. I just wanted to protect myself and my family and my property. Now, a case that we have talked about before, not only in part one of this series, but several other times in several different episodes, is the very important Supreme Court case from 1833 known as Barron v. Baltimore. Now, this was the case that originally held that the provisions of the Bill of Rights applied only to the federal government. And it wasn't until after the Civil War and the ratification of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments uh, that changed this relationship between the federal governments and the states and the protected constitutional rights that we have in the Bill of Rights. And, essentially, the Bill of Rights uh, guaranteed uh, against the state uh, through the Privileges and Immunity Clause all the enumerated rights from the Bill of Rights, or at least that's how it was initially uh, written, I should say. And this is now where we kind of come back full circle to something that I did bring up in part one of the video uh, when we talked about the Crookshank case. Uh, and this has to do with the 1873 Slaughterhouse case and the 1875 U.S.V. Crookshank case. Uh, so if you haven't seen part one, this may not make a whole lot of sense to you. You should probably go back and watch it uh, just because it's a great video anyway. But also it'll help. This will make more sense. Um, anyways, essentially... What these cases did is these gave us very narrow readings of the 14th Amendment, uh, such as in the Slaughterhouse case, where they found that the 14th Amendment's Privileges and Immunities Clause did not protect unenumerated rights, uh, such as in that particular case, the right to contract one's labor. This was followed up in 1875 by U.S. v. Crookshank, uh, and this was a case that held that the Privileges and Immunities Clause in the 14th Amendment also didn't even protect enumerated rights either. And in that case, particularly, they were talking about First and Second Amendment rights. So, to compensate for the Supreme Court's de facto nullification of the Privileges and Immunities Clause, what the court has done uh, is expand the scope of the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses of the 14th Amendment that go well beyond their original meaning to fill in the gap from the Dormant Privileges and Immunities Clause. So, in the late 19th and early 20th century, the court began to hold that provisions of the Bill of Rights were protected against abridgment by the states under due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, this was a process of what became known as selective incorporation through substantive due process. And the court began to incorporate the Bill of Rights one by one, rather than all at once, as uh, was originally intended uh, through the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Now, by 2010, the courts had incorporated virtually all of the individual rights that we have found in the Bill of Rights, uh, with 
one of the very few noticeable exceptions being the Second Amendment. And uh, in the uh, McDonald case, attorney Paul Clement uh, appeared representing the NRA and advocated for an incorporation of the Second Amendment as a fundamental liberty which cannot be infringed without due process of law. This is substantive due process. And this argument was one that won over a conservative plurality, uh, namely with just Chief Justice Roberts and Associate Justices Kennedy, Scalia, and Alito. They held that the Heller right easily meets the standard that the court has used during the last half century. And to explain why this right was fundamental, Justice Alito invoked the Washington v. Glucksburg approach. And he said in his uh, majority opinion that the right to keep and bear arms is implicit in our understanding of ordered liberty and is deeply rooted in the traditions of our country. Now, one surprise was that while neither the conservative plurality or the liberal minority were willing to revisit the slaughterhouse ruling, Otis McDonald's attorney, Alan Gura, did argue that the right to keep and bear arms was among the privileges and immunities of the citizens of the several states and the United States. Now, unfortunately, even uh, noted originalist Antonin Scalia was strongly opposed to overruling Slaughterhouse and to return to an original understanding of the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Uh, as Gura insisted in his oral arguments, the Slaughterhouse case should not have any stare decisis effect before the court. The court has always found that when a case is extremely wrong, when there is a great consensus that it was not decided correctly, especially as a constitutional matter, that that case has less force. And it was only uh, Justice Thomas who was actually willing to rule in favor of McDonald on this basis, as argued by Alan Gura, for a return to an original understanding of the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Uh, as he said uh, in his... Uh, Concurring opinion, the Privileges and Immunities Clause was originally understood to enforce constitutionally declared rights against the states. Now, when we look back to history at the Reconstruction period, uh, and this is something we discussed in the last video as well when we talk about the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the Freedmen's Bureau Bill, both of which were passed either uh, in whole or in part to nullify the ruling in Dred Scott. Uh, along with the eventual addition of the 14th Amendment, which is essentially what gave those statutes uh, teeth, uh, so to speak, that history points unambiguously towards the conclusion that the Privilege and Immunities Clause enforces at least those fundamental rights enumerated in the Constitution against the states, including the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. And the ratifying public understood the Privileges and Immunities Clause to protect constitutionally enumerated rights, including that right. And Thomas said that he would have overruled both Slaughterhouse and Crookshank. And he uh, generally agreed uh, with Gura. And he said that Crookshank is a case that, in his words, quote, is not entitled to any respect. 
Now, in the end, Thomas joined the other conservative plurality uh, that the right to keep and bear arms is a right incorporated onto the state. And in this, he cast the fifth and deciding vote, uh, holding that the Chicago handgun ban was unconstitutional. Now, while the other eight justices all uh, expressed concerns over opening what they seem to view as a Pandora's box that may come by repealing the Slaughterhouse and Crookshank decisions as to what unenumerated rights might entail opening up to, Justice Thomas was unconcerned with this and stated, I see no reason to assume that such hazards apply to the Privileges and Immunities Clause. The fact that a clause does not expressly list the rights it protects does not render it incapable of principled judicial interpretation. But, really, crucially, the main point at the end of the day is that the Chicago Ordinance was found to be unconstitutional. So, what conclusions can we or, or should we draw uh, from this discussion that we've had here in this video and the last one? To a certain extent, I, I leave that up to you, dear viewer, uh, but for me, I think that there are uh, many great suggestions out there of how to uh, achieve a, a real substantive reform of policing in our country, from demilitarization to decentralization, ending qualified immunity, uh, a understanding of the true scope of the public duty doctrine, which... um. But, and things like this, the fact that we can and should stop punishing victimless crimes, uh, we should be ending the abysmal failure that is our war on drugs, and just trying to consciously shrink both the size and the scope of police authority and government authority as well, to a point where they have enough authority to assist us but not control us. And that's where this discussion here today of personal liberty and personal accountability come into play. I know we spent a good deal of time discussing the difference between uh, a collective and an individual right when it comes to the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, but in some ways, I also do think it's kind of folly, folly to see these as two separate things. I, I, I think to a certain degree, the, the founders wouldn't have really recognized that same difference either. I think they saw it all as, as part of one sort of greater right of self-defense and of self-preservation. And I think really the key here is that uh, there is a flip side to rights uh, of responsibilities. Both rights and responsibilities are needed for a free society. So I... I have a right to self-defense and to self-preservation. But with that, I would say, comes the responsibility of recognizing that right in others as well. Your rights are my responsibility. And I hope you see my rights as your responsibility as well. Because the more we allow a government to limit our options, the more we learn to psychologically look to government as our protector in all things. 
And the more that we are willing to uh, give up that precious jewel of liberty for a sense of security that in all likelihood will never actually exist anywhere except in our own minds. And this is uh, precisely the frame of mind that I at least imagine James Madison had when he uh, wrote this in a 1792 article he penned on the importance of uh, property. Where an excess of power prevails, property of no sort is duly respected. No man is safe in his opinions, his person, his faculties, or his possessions. Now, I think also uh, Akhil Lamar has a very interesting take on this. Um, and personally, my view of constitutional law greatly differs from that generally expressed by uh, Akhil Amar. Uh, so I only really say that to point out the fact that the fact that I am endorsing this idea uh, from him will hopefully give you a sense of how much respect I have for this point that is being made. And what he said in an article he wrote called Second Thoughts, uh, what the right to bear arms really means from the New Republic in 1999. He said, quote, like the militia, the jury was a local body countering imperial power, summoned by the government but standing outside of it, representing the people collectively. Like jury service, most of participation, participation, <laughs> militia participation was both a duty and a right of qualified voters who were regularly summoned to discharge their public obligations. Like the jury, the militia was composed of amateurs arrayed against and designed to check permanent and professional government officials. So in the cases of juries, that would be judges and prosecutors. Uh, in the case of the militia, that would be a standing army. So, like the jury, the militia embodied a collective political action more than a private pursuit. And so when you ask, what is the militia? It's, it's really kind of, it, it's just jurors with guns. All right. Well, anyways, um, if you guys have any thoughts uh, on this, on my content, on what I had to say, uh, I would absolutely love to hear uh, from you down in the comment section below. I mean, obviously, everything that I have said here is indisputably true. But just because I have been flawlessly and objectively correct about every single thing I have ever said about anything on any topic at any point in history, doesn't mean that at least theoretically, it's not impossible that something I may currently believe, or something I will come to believe in the future, may turn out to be ever so slightly less than perfectly accurate, and for that reason, I remain open to a good, compelling argument as to why I am wrong. And finally, I want to leave you guys here uh, with a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Human rights are a fine thing, but how can we make ourselves sure that our rights do not expand at the expense of the rights of others? A society with unlimited rights is incapable of standing to adversity. If we do not wish to be ruled, 
by a coercive authority, then each of us must rein himself in. A stable society is achieved not by balancing opposing forces, but by conscious self-limitation. By the principle that we are always duty-bound to defer to the sense of moral justice. Well, that is going to do it for me today. I want to thank you all so much for tuning in to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, uh, I would ask you to consider subscribing to the channel. Uh, I don't put out content on a regular set schedule. And so subscribing to the channel, make sure that when I do put something new out, that you will know about it. And the other thing I say is if you liked this episode, if you would just take a minute for me uh, and just think of two other people you know who you think might also like this episode, find it interesting, entertaining, uh, informative, wh whatever it may be, uh, and just share share this episode with two people who you think would like it. And if you would help me uh, grow the show and the channel that way, I would really, really appreciate it. And if you hated this episode today, uh, I just ask that you take a moment and just think of two people who you also think will really, really hate this show as well, and just take a moment and share the show with them. Because I'm a masochist and your hate gets me off. So until next time, this has been me, Lockheed Liberal, uh, talking about the Second Amendment and the militia for categorical imperatives. And as always, De Linda as Carthago.